morning is, is week three in a sermon series that's gonna carry us throughout the entirety of the summer months, a series entitled Seven Deadly Follies, where we're looking at the seven deadly sins as portrayed in the book of Proverbs. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. Some of Lady Folly's most well-known nicknames going back to the imagery of that poem that we looked at in week one of this series, all familiar temptresses having seduced uh, people throughout the ages and yet unfamiliar as we don't oftentimes see them for what they are in our own lives, the, the destruction that they bring to us, uh, to our families, to the, the spaces that we inhabit. They're are surely more than seven sins, right? Just go to the New Testament, look at any one of the Apostle Paul's list, and you'll see that it's far more expansive than that. But uh, those that have come to be known as the seven deadly sins, they're surely among the most prevalent. They're the ones from which a thousand other sp sins spring forth so that they, they help us to understand something of what's at, at the root so that we can actually then wage war against our sin. Uh, a, a quote that I've brought up from week one of this series, John Owen in his great work entitled The Mortification of Sin. He says, be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. But yes, the, the war's already been won, the victory established in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the Christian life is a, is a war for the soul. Uh, not even just by the week, not even just by the day, not even just by the hour, but, but moment by moment, that Jesus died to secure not only our forgiveness, but our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, which is why the Apostle Paul would say, Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This, this series is about putting to death uh, the, the deeds of the, the body by the power of the Spirit, saying no to the, the poison, feeling the chalice that Lady Folly offers us, again, to give that imagery from Proverbs 9 that we looked at in week one of this series. And, and at the same time, it's about so much more than that. It's not just about seeing the ugliness of the vices for what they are, though, though we are gonna continue to do that week in and week out throughout this series, but it's also about seeing and savoring the beauty of Jesus Christ for who he is, which is, if you're new to our church, that's just kind of our MO is just to keep making much of Jesus and uh, trying to decrease ourselves as much as we, we possibly can. And that's because Jesus, if we're looking at, at a, a book of wisdom literature in the scriptures, we can say Jesus is the personification of wisdom, wisdom in its purest form. His table is the table spread with everything we need for true and lasting happiness and joy. In other words, we're not simply talking about a fight for morality with a series like this, but a fight for our deepest joy. That's what we're pursuing, a, a life of true happiness seated at the all-satisfying table of Jesus Christ. Let me come back to a, a quote that I've shared the first couple of weeks of this series in trying to frame this thing out. Marshall Siegel in his book, uh, well, it's not his book, he's a contributor of it, Killjoys, which is a commentary on the seven deadly sins, he says, Christianity is not merely or even mainly about correcting your bad habits, but about satisfying and fulfilling you in the deepest way possible and therefore making God look as great as he is. Our hearts were designed to enjoy a full and forever happiness, not, a pitiful temporary, uh, not the pitiful temporary pleasures for which we're too prone to settle. 
Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust are all woefully inadequate substitutes for the wonder, beauty, and affection of God. As first hopes or dreams or loves, they are killjoys by comparison to Christ. They will rob you, not ravish you. They will numb you, not heal you. They will slaughter you, not save you. He goes on to say, the map inscribed on our sinful soul will not lead any of us to truth, glory, or happiness. It will lead us in circles of almost and good enough until it sits by our hospice bed, holding our confused, disappointed, and hopeless hand as we drift off into hell. We have to wake up, he says, scrap the old map, grab the compass pointing true north, trusting that the God who formed our hearts knows how to fill them. We have to fight for joy in the right places. This series is about doing everything we possibly can to pursue happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. It's not just about refusing to raise this glass and toast our own death that Lady Folly offers us. It's about embracing that other seat at that other table, that better table. That's what we're chasing after for what? If I'm doing my math rightly now, the next five weeks coming out of this Sunday, as we fight to turn from the, the temptress and whichever of her most alluring personas draws us in and to say yes to, to Jesus, the one who can bring us true joy. Last week, if you missed it, we looked at the alluring persona of pride. Not only the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven, but the sin that got our first parents kicked out of, out of the garden. A serious offense in the eyes of God because in the words of John Stott, it contends for supremacy with God himself. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins, the very vice to which we're most blind in our own lives, a vice that creates bondage, a vice that, that brings destruction, all the while causing us to miss out on the true freedom and joy that comes in seeing uh, and relating rightly to God as opposed to humility, which offers us the blessing of seeing ourselves rightly and fight for our, our true joy, our lasting happiness, offering us true freedom from bondage to our fragile human egos, from constantly being fixated on, on the self. The blessing of seeing the Lord rightly, the joy that comes from basking in his glory rather than chasing after our own. Last week was about embracing a seat at the table of humility, a seat secured for us through the humility of Jesus Christ. This morning, we move on to the second of Lady Folly's alluring personas. Drum roll, please. The temptress who goes by the name of Sloth, which is just kind of a weird word picture, right? We've been talking about Lady Folly, this temptress, and now you have this animal in your mind that probably just doesn't even do justice to where we're trying to go here because I want you to see by the end of all this that it's really tempting to move toward her. Um, if, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. We'll start there. We'll move into some other places. I'll, I'll get to that in a second, a little differently than last week, but, but we're gonna begin there. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be uh, slides up behind me that'll walk us through where we are in Scripture at any given point, give commentary quotes as I've We've already done in these last few minutes together. Let me, let me just go ahead and pray for us because uh, we've got a little bit of ground to cover this morning. Lord, in sitting with this topic, in this great book of the Bible that you've given us, 
I'm becoming increasingly convinced more and more by the day that, that this might be one of the hardest sells in all of this series, Lord. Because in the one sense, it, it invites us to grab hold of the reality that we are caught up in something so much bigger than us and to, uh, to have our hearts awakened to the wonder of what that means and at the same time to see that much of what it means to to honor you and to, to take a seat at the other table, the better table, is pretty non-glamorous uh, in the day in and day out, even by the hour, what, it, what the, the application of a sermon like this would be in light of the cross. And so, uh, God, would you, uh, would you sell this room, including myself, my own mind and heart on these things, Lord? Um, not just that we would be con- convinced that uh, the scriptures have what I hope to be uh, been exegeted well, and that we would go, yeah, theologically, doctrinally, doctrinally, yes and amen. But God, further than that, that, that we would walk out transformed and would live our lives differently for your glory. Holy Spirit, would you move uh, apart from your great work in this room in these moments to come? This is truly an exercise in futility. We are desperate for you. Spirit of God, move in power. Transform us, change us, bring us to our knees in repentance, and deeper faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. All right, so uh, right out of the gate this morning, I think it's important for us to, to be on the same page and understanding something about uh, the, the book of Proverbs. Namely that a proverb is not an absolute promise, but rather a normative promise. I'll give you an example. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse four, says a slack hand causes poverty but the hand of the diligent makes rich. My guess is that many of us could offer examples of lazy people with lots of money and hardworking people with little to show for it, right? So that uh, the promise that a proverb offers, it's, it's not always absolute, meaning that it's not universal in its outworking for all people at all times. And at the same time, the promise that a proverb offers does follow the normative pattern of the way God designed the world to work. So that it shouldn't come as a surprise to us if humility is rewarded with honor, going back to last week, and diligence is rewarded with food on the table. I want want us to keep that in mind in the weeks to come as it pertains to rightly interpreting and understanding the book of Proverbs, because if you don't, if you try to universalize it, you get into some dangerous interpretive territory then. Last week, and I mentioned this just a second ago in terms of where are we gonna go in the scriptures? Uh, Last week, we walked through, I think, roughly two dozen, I wanna say, passages on pride, all found in the book of Proverbs. It was a fly by the seat of our our pants, buckle up kind of thing. This morning, we're gonna go at things just a little bit differently because the book of Proverbs goes at things a little bit differently as it pertains to, to sloth. We're gonna devote the majority of our time focusing on two word pictures similar to uh, week one's focus on those two images of lady wisdom and lady folly, the kind of uh, imagery that I trust has the, the power to awaken us out of our slumber and lead us to more deeply committed lives of spirit-empowered diligence for the glory of God. That's what, we're, that's what we're aiming for. The first of those pictures coming out of Proverbs 24, representing the house of lady folly as it pertains to the danger of sloth. You get these words beginning Proverbs 24, verse 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, 
The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Here you have a picture of a, of a wise man passing by the field of a slugger, giving indication to the nature of, of that field. It kind of has a, a Lorax sort of vibe to it, right? No more truffula trees in the, in the town of, of the, the Onceler, now overgrown with thorns, covered with thistles, hearkening back to the, the fall of man, Genesis 3, the cursing of the ground in the wake of Adam's sin, the bringing forth of thorns and thistles, Genesis 3, 18, the stage of, of human history now less than utopian. As God says, you were meant to rule the earth, but now the, the earth is actually gonna rule you in a sense. Be sure it's not the, the work itself that's the punishment, praise God for that. You see it when you go further back than the story of the fall to the, the creation story. Going back to Genesis one and two, we talked about this before as a church. Eden was a temple of sorts. It was a garden sanctuary. Adam was put in the garden. Scripture tells us to work it and keep it. That's, that's priestly language. That's Levite language. Adam was to guard the garden sanctuary of God as the first priest in human history before you ever even get to the Levitical priesthood. And with that, a second thing God commanded was that Adam and Eve would exercise dominion over all of creation to fill the earth and subdue it. That's kingly language. So you have a priest-king sort of thing happening in the creation story. Man was to rule over creation, to cultivate creation for the glory of the greater king of creation. The trouble, as many of you know, if you've read just the first three chapters of the Bible, is that God's first priest-king and queen of creation rebelled against the greater king, choosing a life of judicial autonomy and self-determination, failing to work the garden, failing to guard the garden, Coming back to this, this imagery, Proverbs 24, you, you see that same both and here, a failure to protect and a failure to cultivate. The failure to protect represented verse 31 by the stone wall broken down so that now the field, it's subject to vulnerability. Verse 34, to the danger of enemy attack. The failure to cultivate represented uh, by the thorns and thistles now overgrowing and covering the field. Nothing to show for in terms of uh, God honoring uh, working of the land that comes with diligence. And, and lest that we think that the way of the sluggard is anything less than a path toward death and destruction, listen to these verses from the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 18, nine, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. That even has enemy language to it, right? The stealing, killing, and, and destroying language that we see attached to Satan in the New Testament. That just like pride, sloth is a poison that kills, again, offered in the most alluring of cups. And it, and it doesn't, and, and this is fascinating. I don't know what you bring into this space as you think about that word, sloth. Um, it doesn't oftentimes look like what we might expect it to look like. It's not simply and solely a picture of, of laziness as we might think. I'll give you some examples uh, from Proverbs directly. Sloth uh, in one way can manifest itself in a posture of all talk, no action. So that the talk is the diligence 
and that's really no diligence at all. Proverbs 14, 23, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk lends only to poverty. How often do we, do we talk about things that might glorify God? Deep dive into conversations with, with others even while never actually getting around to, to putting those things into to practice. And then there's the posture of all desire, no action. Listen to these verses, Proverbs 13, verse four. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. In other words, sloth doesn't always manifest itself in apathy or indifference, as we might oftentimes think, but, but rather misplaced cravings and desires at times. Go, go back to uh, even some of that Ecclesiastes framing of the author of Ecclesiastes chasing after things with, with desire and passion, but never really moving toward anything meaningful. Sloth can also find expression in our not finishing what we start. Proverbs 12, 27, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Notice there that, that the slothful man, he does the work of hunting. He goes out into the woods, he kills the animal, and yet he, he fails to actually put the meat in the smoker, so to speak. Right, I'm sure many of us can relate to that, the many things we start, but we never actually finish in life. And then, and this one's gonna hurt a little bit, and then there's the manifestation of sloth that likely resonates most with those of us who live in the midst of 21st century American cultural context and backdrop. Namely, the following of worthless pursuits. Proverbs 12, 11, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 28, 19, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. I, read, I was reading this in a commentary this week, and this is mind-blowing, and at the same time, not really. Um, as recent as a few years ago, I don't know if you, you've ever come across the uh, video game for mobile devices called Angry Birds. Anybody seen that game before? Um, and if you've ever played it, you're kind of like bristling now and wondering what's about to, about to come. Uh, as recent as a few years ago, that one game, Angry Birds, cost businesses $1.5 billion in lost wages as employees sat around in their workspaces and just did their thing. If you think about that, I mean, it begs the question, if a single game like that can cost businesses $1.5 billion, I think we have to ask ourselves, what, what, what are the endless hours devoted to scrolling social media? What are they costing us? What's the cost there? What is it costing us not only to scroll, but to spend hours thinking about how we're gonna word our next post or, or the, the amount of time that we spend creating uh, our filters on our pictures to try to make them look just right you know, before we post them? What are the endless hours of cat videos on YouTube and binge streaming Netflix costing us? There is a cost there. And that's not to demonize those things, right? I mean, there's so many things uh, that 
Uh, the church can oftentimes demonize that are actually good things distorted. There's nothing wrong with Netflix. Um, there may be things wrong with cat videos on YouTube. I'm not sure we could kind of argue about that. But, um, but it's, this, it's this question of, of the distortion that we, we take things that are neither good nor evil necessarily, and, and we, we have this way of twisting them or leveraging them in ways that now all of a sudden we're off the beating path, beaten path of, of what the Lord would have for us. I told you last week, this series was not for the faint of heart. If you're, if you're really uh, trying to build a megachurch overnight, this is not the series that you, you bring into the pulpit. I think we have to ask the question, what are, what are those endless pursuits costing us, whatever they are, and for each of us it's different, what are they costing us in terms of our growing relationship with God? Those opportunities to lean into the presence of God and the means of his grace that are right there for the taking for us. What are they costing us in terms of neighbor love, the time and investment that we could be making into one another within the body of Christ as it pertains to brotherhood, sisterhood, discipling of each other? What are they costing us in terms of the forward march of Jesus's church and the evangelizing of the lost, all of those hours that, that we could be moving toward those who are still in darkness, who are still in a place of death, uh, who need to be called into the marvelous light of Christ. Now, here's the danger, and it's one and the same with what we talked about last week, which is that very few of us see something of the sluggard in, in ourselves. Now, maybe over the last, I don't know, 10 minutes of this sermon, maybe you're going, ah, I disagree. But, but most often, if we do, well, surely if we do, it's the kindness of the Lord leading us to repentance because it's not something that we naturally run toward, gravitate toward, and go, I'm the sluggard, which is why Proverbs 26, 16 would say, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I mean, we see it in others with the eye of a hawk. And yet, like pride, we oftentimes struggle to see it in ourselves. And even when we do, we're, we're quick to make excuses. You even see that in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs twenty two thirteen. 13, the sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Or Proverbs 26, 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. It's an excuse to to avoid stepping out into the thistle-adorned field, so to speak, with what one perceives in one's own mind to be a legitimate excuse. I'll be as good as dead if I go out there. Better to stay home and lounge around. I mean, I don't think I need to offer us a list of excuses for sloth in our own lives. That might actually just give us more to, to cling to as we go into that minimizing of sin thing that, that we can so easily do of blame shifting or defending and, and whatnot. I think suffice it to say, it, it's just, it's a sad picture of, of the truest expression of what it means to waste our lives, to truly miss out on what, what God has for us, what we were made for as God's priests, kings, and queens. In contrast, the book of Proverbs declares, here's your second word picture, Proverbs chapter six, verses six through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, 
And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You have a second word picture in contrast to to the field covered in thorns and thistles, the picture of the ant representing the house of lady wisdom as it pertains to the beauty of diligence. It's sobering to think, I mean, think about this for a second, to think that the ant doesn't need the correction or rebuke that you and I oftentimes need committed without prodding to God's design of diligence and cultivation. Proverbs 6, Solomon says, consider her ways, the ant's ways, and be wise. That that every anthill, bizarre as it may may sound, is, is a cry to the lazy, look, this is how I've designed the world to work. That if you wanna know what wisdom looks like, look at this smallest of creatures, who needs no leader to motivate her to do what God has designed her to do. She doesn't need a sermon on sloth. She intuitively understands her place in the created order. Now, if you feel the heaviness of that right now, if you feel the the weight of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that, let me give you something incredibly encouraging to come alongside of that, which is how much more valuable are you than she, the ant? You're God's priests, kings, and queens. How much more valuable is your labor in the Lord than what any ant is doing were we to kick over the top of an anthill? It's a laboring, no doubt, with respect to which we've all fallen short, Romans 3, just like our parents in the garden, reminding us yet again, and we'll go here every week because we must, to our desperate need for Jesus. The gospel revealing to us the heart of God the diligence and faithfulness of God. Not only did Jesus faithfully get his hands uh, dirty in the work of carpentry, but also in the greater work that the Father sent him to do on our behalf. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, the work of redemption. John 17, Four, I have glorified you on earth, Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus paid it all. He did it. And he said it is finished. That's what he, that's what he meant. He's the perfect priest king. He succeeded where, where Adam failed, where you and I have failed. Having stooped down into the slothful slums of human history that he might live the perfect life of diligence and obedience that, that you and I failed to live in our place only then to bear uh, the the sins of our slothfulness in his body on the tree. Counted slothful so that you and I, the slothful, might be counted diligent, that we might be counted faithful. That as paradoxical as as it might seem in a sermon on sloth, the Christian life is in one sense a striving to rest as we trust in the finished work of Jesus. If you're... If you're not a Christian, I invite you to turn to him. Again, coming back to week one of this series, that Proverbs 9 language, to turn from your simple ways, to enter the house of wisdom, and to live. And if you are a Christian, again, I've been saying this since week one, Christ not only died to secure our forgiveness, but also our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, that we might know truer, deeper, lasting joy, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. And so I wanna do what I attempted to do last week and even in week one, which is to re-evangelize us, if you're a Christian, for just a second here. 
And, and I wanna first look future and remind us that, because we've gone past creation fall, I wanna look future and remind us that there's coming a day when you and I, hallelujah, will experience the fullness of what we were created for in that celestial city of the everlasting God, that we will see his face, we will reign with him forever as the, the priests, kings, and queens he made us to be. And as we eagerly long for that day, should he tarry, I think Paul gives us some really helpful words, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The only therefore in all of 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on Jesus's resurrection, the single so what of the finished work of Christ. Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, securely positioned, grounded, not shifting from the hope of the gospel into other silly things. And with that groundedness in the message of the gospel, Paul says we're to be invested in the ministry of the gospel, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always, at all times, abounding out of the overflow of our fullness in Christ. That because Jesus rose from, from the grave and ascended to the Father, all the benefits of the indwelling spirit are ours. He's the spirit who guides us, the spirit who directs us, the spirit who empowers us for service. That whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to use Paul's language elsewhere in scripture, that we might do all to the glory of the one no longer enshrouded in burial linens, adding brushstrokes of, of gospel color to give more imagery to the canvas of, of this thistle and thorn world. We joyfully spend our life for the glory of the risen king. That not only do we have an unshakable message in which we can stand and rest and find our hope, we have an unstoppable ministry to which and for which we can give our lives. And it's something, again, so much more significant and eternal than the work of a stinking ant. In the words of John Piper, wrote an entire book by the title, I think you could sum up this morning's sermon coming out of the finished work of Jesus and what we're called to, to the simple phrase, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. And there's great hope, again, 1 Corinthians 15, that if our labor is in the Lord, we won't. We won't come up empty on that great day, on the day of harvest. Paul says again, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Here it is, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That not one act of gospel form labor will have been an exercise in futility when all is said and done. Now, here's where the hard sell comes in. What, what I'm arguing for here is that you and I are caught up in something so much bigger than us. Again, we're, we're, we're a part of this great story of redemption in which we are God's priests, kings, and queens called to cultivate, to steward that which God has given us for his glory. It's a bigger story than any one of us. It's a great adventure that we've been brought into because of and through Christ. That's glamorous, right? That's millennial. Like, I can get on board with that. But here's, here's where the hard sell comes in. 
On the flip side of that, the reality of what it means to actually leave this place and embrace that is incredibly non-glamorous. It's as non-glamorous as the work of the Proverbs 31 woman. Listen to some of the, the language of that chapter, and I would encourage you to go read it and, and to allow it to, to sort of give, give some sort of, of texture to, to what it means to actually labor in the Lord. Listen to this. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Where's the credit for that come? Where's the glamour in that? She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She's a hard worker. Most people don't see half the things she does. Sounds like a Mother's Day message, right? Like bad timing on the calendar there. She, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Who's impressed? She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household for all her household are clothed in scarlet. I think it's safe to say that while in the one sense we've been caught up into something so much bigger than us, this great story, this glorious cosmic level redemptive story, at the same time, what it means to walk in God-honoring diligence to labor in the Lord is to do non-glamorous things for the glory of God over and over again until we die or Jesus comes back. It's that uh, voyage of the dawn treader imagery that I've given before. On the one hand, you can talk in very visionary leadership language and say, you're on a ship headed toward Aslan's country. And that'll wow you when you, when you talk at that kind of cosmic level of what you've been caught up in. But then to be told, and so for the glory of the great lion, here's your oar. Not glamorous, but if you know Christ and you love Christ, he's worth it. The Lord invites us, he exhorts us even to spend and be spent for his glory in the sake of our own joy. In our homes, whatever that means. In our workplaces, whatever that means. In our neighborhoods, whatever that means, in the church, whatever that means. So that the last question I'll put out there is, what might God do in those various spheres of life should we embrace the God-glorifying, spirit-empowered disposition of the ant? I would exhort us to, let's, let's give it a shot and see what God might do.